the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to the marinade with Jason Earl, a free flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 98, and our guest is Justin Corsby. Justin is a filmmaker whose first feature length effort is must viewing for any film lover, and it is tailor made for fans of the marinade. Hard Luck Love Song was inspired by the Todd Snyder song, Just Like Old Times. Snyder is, of course, a frequent subject of conversation on this podcast and is one of the most beloved guests in the marinade's history. Hard Luck Love Song is a film in the spirit of the marinade, not only because of the Todd connection. It's a work born of a fit of inspiration, an improbable explosion of creativity from a filmmaker who had a vision, big dreams, and an uncompromising will to make his work come to life. Justin Corsby is that filmmaker, and I'm so excited for y'all to hear this conversation. Before we get to it, let's listen to the trailer for Hard Luck Love Song. Are you caught in town? Maybe. You want to come over and have a drink? We got the house rules on the board over here. It's best two out of three. But keep the action moving, okay? Stay safe out there. Looks like you're fixing to run. No, you got me on run. ID. That's a blockbuster card. I don't like getting hustled. And things that I don't like wind up in a hole in the fucking desert. I'm out here in the track her down for over a year. She's important to me, man. So you're still playing music? Yeah, yeah, still banging away. You know, it's been really good to me. Okay, that's amazing. You gotta take good care of her. You are so talented. It's always just a matter of you <laughs> pulling together. Once again, you have no idea what you are talking about. You don't remember? Stop! You need real help. Come over here, you little shit. Please! I can't be in one of your situations. Nobody ain't getting out till I let him out today. Stop. I ain't in the mood to let nobody out. It's gonna be great. It'll be just like old times. That's scary. After a nationwide theater run, Hard Luck Love Song is now streaming on all major platforms. Click the link in the show notes to watch the film, y'all. Everybody, it is such an honor to bring you my conversation with filmmaker Justin Corsby. See if that's any, is that any better? Yeah, that sounds great here. Okay, awesome. Cool. Thanks, Thanks Justin. I heard you were a little under the weather. Are you feeling any better? Thank you for being so uh, flexible. Um, yeah, I am, I'm a lot better, but you, I'll still have to turn away and cough a few times. I don't know. I think it's just allergies, but I did Americana Fest, Gasparilla Music Fest, and then I flew up to see the drive-by truckers in Minnesota three weekends in a row, and my body just doesn't isn't used to that. And I think it's just my body being like, pump your brakes, dude. That is absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel you. I'm surprised I haven't been hit with some sort of bug myself. We did Americana Fest, a little sneak peek of the movie during Americana Fest too. So I know uh, I, was, I was bummed. I wasn't in town in time. I got the invitation, but I, I didn't get there till the, the that night at like nine 30, I got in town. So, but man, the film is wonderful. If there was ever a film that was tailor-made for the marinade with Jason Earl podcast. It's hard luck love song. It, 
based on a Todd Snyder song. Todd's been a guest on the show. Yeah. Um, on a song that's from The Devil You Know, which was co-produced by Will Kimbrough, who's also been on the show. Um, Michael fucking Dorman, who I sing the praises of every chance I can and talk about the genius that is Patriot every single chance I can on this show. The RZA, I mean, it just like everything that I could want from a film before I even got to see the film is all laid out there. And then you've written and directed this gorgeous film. I'm just crazy about it. I watched it twice and it's just absolutely beautiful, man. So thank you so much for your film and thanks for doing this. Wow. Amazing. Thanks uh, for all of those kind words and thanks for having me on. It sounds like you and I are living in the uh, same Venn diagram of uh, Michael Dorman, Todd Snyder and the RZA. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have plenty to talk about. Um, I think um, there's plenty to discuss. You know, I I think <clears throat> I, I kind of want to go, if we can, uh, into sort of you're the first filmmaker I've had on the show. And I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about like how you got into making films and going all the way back also to sort of like your childhood in you're sort of there where the the texas heartworn highways kind of scene is happening as a kid um and i'm wondering about like what that life was like growing up and like at at what point did you kind of go hey i'm around all this creativity and my creative outlet looks like it's gonna be film it's a really good question. Yeah. Um, for, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but for those of your listeners who maybe haven't uh, heard anything else I've done or, or uh, haven't read up on any of this stuff uh, in any of the media hits that have been happening, I was born literally in a house, uh, an air conditioned house in the Clarksville neighborhood of Austin. And if you've seen Heartworn Highways, which I'm sure many of your listeners have, um, I was born a couple blocks away from uh, that trailer where Towns Van Zandt is kind of holding court in uh, half the, that movie. So um, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. It was a special time in Austin, obviously, at that time frame. That neighborhood in particular was is a very, very interesting, rich, colorful neighborhood. Um, and I, you know, was raised there by this bohemian single mother poet Um in and around that whole music scene. And her, her best friends, a couple of her best friends ran these singer-songwriter joints in Austin in the 70s and 80s. And I was literally like a little five-year-old kid running around um, this place called the Alamo Lounge and this other place called Emma Joe's, watching Towns Van Zant, Lucinda Williams, Butch Hancock, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Joe Ely, um, that whole scene of, of people. And my mom was friends with all those people and is still friends with a lot of those people. And, uh, you know, she'd read poems kind of before they would play. And, um, I literally got up on stage and like played bongo drums with, uh, Butch Hancock one time when uh, I was like a probably five or six year old kid or something, um, at one of those you know, kind of epic shows that he would put on at those places. So, um, I was kind of, immersed in that whole kind of roots music kind of folk music scene um at kind of a heyday time period kind of in austin um when that stuff was happening um i mean i remember as a little kid watching towns van zandt butch hancock do song swaps and stuff like that at some of those places um and um yeah just really kind of you know was able just as a kid just be around that kind of you know, kind of bohemian kind of musician artist kind of scene in, in a, you know, kind of a pivotal time in Austin. Um, so that was super cool. Um, and then kind of as I got a little bit older, there was this incredible like art rock, indie rock, punk rock kind of scene that was happening in Austin. And I was in and around that scene. If you've ever seen the movie Slacker, um, mm -hmm. I was like a 10 year old kid hanging skateboard punk kid, like hanging around the drag when all that stuff was going down and hanging out at Liberty lunch, um, which was this kind of cool indie rock punk rock kind of club in Austin in the eighties um, in and around a whole scene, a different whole scene of music in that period. So I, I kind of, you know, there there's like in the movie Forrest Gump, he's kind of around all these like pivotal kind of moments Uh <laughs> you know, obviously exaggerated, but um, I sort of feel like that a little bit in, in my childhood, kind of growing up in Austin around these kind of pivotal music scenes um, that kind of made Austin what it is um, from a music standpoint. And it really, you know, it, it 
made a huge impression on me as a person, but also just as a, as a creative. So music has always been like a real kind of touchstone for me for inspiration and just kind of, kind of how I live my life, honestly. Mm. So how does that then end up, you could have very easily, it seems like in growing up in that scene, in those scenes, plural, and, um, and around those folks, you, you could have very easily kind of had music as your primary creative outlet. So how does it, when did it become, when did you know I'm going to pursue the path toward making films and kind of what was the spark? Yeah. um, You know, I tried playing, I took guitar lessons when I was younger. I tried, you know, a little bit, but, you know, didn't have the patience for it probably, to be honest. Um, So I can't play music to save my life. but I just enjoy it so much. It's such a, you know, kind of important kind of creative spark for me. I would say, you know, always very interested in music and in kind of artistic uh, stuff. I wasn't, I wasn't the kid who took art classes and stuff like that. I had a lot of friends who were really good artists, you know, painters and sculptors and, you know, illustrators and whatnot. So I wasn't that kind of artistic, creative type kid growing up, I, but I was very much into, uh films and music and literature and and into art and kind of more like soaking it kind of all in um i remember i forget how young i was pretty young um i have a a brother who's uh you know i think 13 years older than me so i i definitely was able to get exposed to a lot of stuff um from him but i remember seeing clockwork orange probably when i was an adolescent and that probably was like the movie that kind of lit my fuse from a filmmaking standpoint um just so artistic and kind of anti-hero and and so kind of different and unique and and just so you know cinematically uh amazing um and and so that kind of probably was the one that kind of lit my fuse um and you know it's it's interesting. I, I kind of have the two sides of my brain. I'm an entrepreneur. I own a business. Um, I've had a business, a, a production company that I started 19 years ago when I was 25 years old. Um, and it's been, I've been very fortunate to have a successful career directing big TV commercials for major ad agencies and big brands through that, that company that I started. Um, so I have kind of two sides of my brain. And when I was, you know, that are both of interest to me, that kind of more logical kind of business kind of side of me and then the kind of more creative side to me. So when I was in high school, um, I played sports and did all that stuff and, and also did pretty well at academics and, and whatnot. Um, and my plan, I worked for, um, law firms when I was in high school for some, you know, family, um, family and friends who were kind of successful attorneys in town. And my plan was like to go to law school. So I kind of went off to film school, uh, as like, oh, I can go study whatever I want for undergrad and then I'll just go to law school and, you know, make that that lawyer money. Um, and so I was like, yeah, on a lark, so, not on a completely on a lark. I mean, I went to NYU. It wasn't like um, <laughs> it wasn't like there wasn't some thought to it. But um, I went to film school thinking, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. This will be great kind of, you know, fun undergrad experience. And I'll go to law school and end up you know being an attorney, maybe an entertainment attorney or something like that. Um, so it wasn't really till I got to film school that I really kind of, you know, jumped, jumped in, uh, first, I guess, into, um, becoming a filmmaker, you know? Yeah. You, you hung around law firms and still wanted to be a lawyer. That's just mind blowing to me. I, I think that was probably the thing that made me not want to be yeah, yeah. a lot of, uh, the uh, the family that I worked for and friends that I worked for worked in family law. So um, yeah, so it was pretty heavy, heavy stuff. And, you know, see, you know, certainly, you know, they're admirable for doing it because it's a necessary thing, but man, just seeing some of those kind of things unfold, the bickering between people and kind of, you know, families kind of going through the kind of worst moments of their lives kind of made me go, man, I don't think I can handle that kind of heavy stuff. I worked, uh, I, I have a law degree and I worked for as a law clerk for a while. I was on the family law docket for a few months 
And I did have one like fascinating international custody case that I should probably tell at some point that story on, on my Patreon or something, just a really interesting case, but <clears throat> the day-to-day of it is just soul crushing, man. And yeah. so that, that is really interesting. And it's interesting that you ended up going the route that you did. I'm curious about the creative side of your brain when you, you establish your production company and you're doing commercials and and I've heard you talk a little bit about what that process looks like. Um, you spoke with Jack Ingram a little bit about that. But then the thing that I'm kind of curious about, that I'm very curious about, is a feature film like this seems like it would be a very different creative process than those commercials. And I wonder if that occupies a different space in your brain, the creative process of something of this magnitude versus making a commercial, not to diminish the commercial, but I just mean like the creative headspace and what the difference looks like. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love both forms commercials. Um, you know, a lot of people just think of like your typical kind of local car dealership commercial or whatever. <laughs> there really is an art form to it. And, and the industry has changed quite a bit, but there are epic, you know, huge budget, epic commercials that are every bit as cinematic as uh, a lot of the content, you know, film and television that's being produced today. So I was really inspired by that, um, that aspect of it. And I was, I have been fortunate to have uh, a successful career directing commercials. And th- what I love about it is it's short form. So you get to the, the, the process of doing a project and completing a project, uh, you know, is only a few weeks, you know? And so that part is really uh, interesting. And also you just get to kind of hone your skills and get to try different things. So there's a part of me that likes to try a bunch of different things. I'm very project oriented. So I like to complete things. And then like the mm. one project might be epic and cinematic. One commercial might be epic and cinematic. The next project um, for me, because I've been fortunate to dabble in a lot of different genres of commercials, I might do something that's like very improv comedy based the very next thing. And so I get to try these different things and do these different things and work with kind of different set of skills um, not only my own school skills, but also get work with different artisans. Um, and so it's a really great place to kind of, you know, I have been on set, you know, I've done, you know, thousands of days on set, you know, Mm -hmm. directing. So when you're making a movie or a television series or like, or or whatnot, you know, it can take years to get one off the ground and, and you often get to the goal line and something falls apart and you have to start all over again. And so, the idea for me of being able to do stuff constantly and continuing to kind of hone my craft and, and getting to try and experiment with different approaches to stuff and different equipment, even um, different technology. Mm-hmm. And the budgets are usually pretty flush. So you get to kind of have, you know, in, in my case, I've, I've been fortunate to be able to work with some incredible, you know, collaborators and, and do some fun stuff. So um, that's the short form stuff is, is really rewarding in that way. The long form stuff, you know, doing a feature is like a marathon. So there's just a stamina you have to have. You know, we we only we shot the film over 20 days, which is, you know, pretty short for in comparison to, you know, major you know films, but also kind of fairly standard for like an indie film in this kind of uh, budget range, I would say. Some of them are a little bit longer. Um, But the difference between doing, you know, three days on a commercial and you're going, you know, nonstop 15 hours a day every day there's huge difference between doing that and then converting that to basically 20 day shoot which means you're you know prepping every day you're down for not shooting so it's like 30 days of 15 hours plus a day just non-stop intense focus on a movie and that stamina is just like a whole different level of Mm -hmm. engagement and focus that that uh you know you couldn't really prepare for i don't think Wow. Okay. So let's dive into the film Hard Luck Love Song, which has, it's just so beautiful and um, has, has been such a pleasure to get to watch and, and dissect when you, so let me back up for a second. Cause there's something that happens to me when I watch a film, I didn't get to see this one in theaters yet, but, um, but watching a film in a theater sometimes is overwhelming to me. <clears throat> like it, it ignites my anxiety and the anxiety I think comes from the fact that making a feature film like this, especially a good one like this, when there's so much that goes into it and so many things that have to go right. And so many talented people have to 
to be on top of their game for something like this to come together as beautifully as it has. There are, so, there are times when I'll watch a film like this in a theater and just feel like I'll never be able to do something like that. Do you, did you come into it at, with any sort of like, holy shit, how am I going to do this? Or did you go into it going like, I know how to do this. I know what I'm going to do. How, what was your like confidence level as you went into this? Yeah, a little bit of both, I would say, you know, like I said, I've, I've had a lot of time on set and I've directed a lot of, you know, big projects, short form. So I had okay. the confidence, you know, I, I had a lot more experience and confidence than, you know, maybe a typical first time director. At the same time, I have that same kind of reaction that you're describing, you know, when I go see a movie by an incredible filmmaker, like, it's just mind blowing how they're able to kind of conduct this entire symphony for such a sustained period of time and to get it to really all come together in such a cohesive uh, piece of compelling art. I, I kind of like to think of filmmaking as like, for me, and, and you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but for me, it's like, it is like the ultimate art. You're combining all of these different arts, different art forms into one thing, right? It's got music, it's got literature, it's, it's got, you know, photography and painting and everything all into one thing. And so getting all of those elements to come together and in, into one, you know, cohesive piece is a, I mean, it's a minor miracle that any movie gets made period, let alone that it turns out to be good. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a bit overwhelming to think about it. And, you know, I kind of, I would say I went into it with kind of naive confidence, I think in some ways, um, and a lot of it was, you know, probably that stamina thing that I mentioned. It's just, I, I, I probably did not, um, I mean, I, even though I thought about it, I was like, I probably underestimated just how much intense, long period of intense focus that it takes to, to do this thing. And, um, you know, I just, I, you kind of have to just suck it up and do it, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, kind of learn, learn on, on, from your mistakes as you go. And, you know, probably think about some of those things the next time out, you know, should, should I get the opportunity to do another one? And um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, confidence is a good thing, but also now that I have one under my belt, there's definitely some things that I learned that I'll carry on to the next one. What are some of those things that you learned? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, making a movie is very, like I said, very challenging, requires a lot of focus and stamina. And I think there were times where, um, you know, that maybe I was like, maybe I'm pushing too hard. Maybe I take my foot off the gas and see what happens if, if I'm not like really grinding and pushing this boulder up the hill. And, I, mm -hmm. you know, so there were times where I'm like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to sit back and a little bit on on this one on this day and and you know see if a, a little maybe looser approach or maybe a little less uh you know intense focus maybe gets something else out of it you know maybe there's something there and i uh, unfortunately i found that that's not the way for me at least like taking your foot off the gas a little bit you know resulting in times where i'm probably like uh wish i had pushed a little harder or wish i had uh, put in extra time or extra hours to try to perfect something, or maybe been, you know, um, just kind of raise the expectations on certain things, you know, that, uh, that maybe I was like, Oh, well, I've got it. We'll coast through on this day and I'll recover. And then tomorrow, you know, the next day will be another day I can kind of focus back in. And I just don't think it works that way in filmmaking. I think every day you have to be as locked in as you could possibly be and push as hard as you can push to uh to get the desired outcome wow that's really interesting because I, I think about the analogy of sports and like a great coach you know john calipari always says that he he does he just surrounds himself with the best players and of course he knows the game but he's like i just go out and get the best players i can and then i do my best to like turn them loose and let their talent shine and you've got i mean michael dorman and sophia bush in this are just both and the chemistry between them is just incredible jumps off the screen you've got a, such an amazing cast so many talented people the source material is obviously really rich and then you've done this wonderful thing with it so it's interesting to me to think about like you as a director and producer like how you <clears throat> How, like how how you put the your foot on the gas in that way right in terms of like 
trying to get the best out of these people by what but but also getting out of the way enough to be like i got michael dorman and sophia bush right yeah, like, yeah. How, how do you no, strike they're, that they're, balance? they're remarkable but like just to give you an example of how that applies is like you know we have this amazing i mean michael dorman and sophia bush obviously or the the movie is built around the chemistry between them and this history that's between them and they're amazing in the movie so and i can go on and on about that and i will um but just to give you an example of like foot on the gas is like um when eight when the agents or the casting directors and our casting directors were very supportive um but people are like no you're not going to be able to get like a name actor for one of these supporting roles you're just going to have to get like a, a great character actor that nobody's ever heard of yada 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 and my foot on the gas is like no I really want somebody like Dermot Mulroney for this Rolo character, or I really want Eric Roberts or, you know, people kind of laughed at me when I said, I want Riza for this <laughs> role. And uh, so like being able to like, I, I don't know, I have champagne tastes and, and beer budget, although I, I actually mostly drink beer, but um, really kind of have, I have high expectations. So that's kind of what I'm saying about the foot on the gas stuff is just like, not take I, I not taking no for an answer and going, yeah, you know, I know we don't have the money. I know it's a small movie. I know that it's only a supporting part or whatever, but this is really what will make this really come to life. And we have to at least go ask for it and beg, borrow and steal to make it happen. And, and that's kind of more, um, I guess, the my approach to kind of grinding and foot on the gas. But you know, yeah, absolutely. The magic happens, you know, and, and I think the script was in a really good place, but the magic happens for me when, you know, I'm standing there next to the camera and I'm watching uh, Michael Dorman and Sophia Bush kind of waltz around the room singing Can't Complain and just watching the kind of tension lift between their characters and then a new tension kind of uh, present itself after he's done playing the song. Um, and just like watching those kind of undulations of, uh of feelings that happen between people who've known each other and are that kind of intimate with each other like being able to watch that happen in in the scene while we're shooting it like i it's magic and i'm you know i i have so much respect for actors they're they're just so talented mm -hmm. and you know in in lesser hands you know that scene doesn't work the way that it works you know and so what they were the chemistry they were able to develop and that kind of history that they were able to develop in these characters is just when you see it happen and like, I mean, I'm watching it on set and I know I'm like, holy shit, this is very powerful stuff. This is going to make the movie, you know, you get, you know, a couple scenes like that and you have something memorable. And so, yeah, you definitely don't step in and, and try to slow that down or anything. You, you know, you kind of give broad notes and then you let them kind of, you know, you let them do their thing. You give some broad notes and then you watch them kind of keep, keep working at it till it, just comes to life and man, they did. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. So what does the screenplay process look like for you when you sat down to write this? Or was it, is that like a, you're a, you're a busy man. You got a lot of stuff going on. was it like you carved out time each day to do it? Were you fully dedicated to this particular project in terms of the writing process? Did the writing come over a, a period of time? Like what did the, the process of writing this look like? That's a good question. You know, it actually went really fast. Um, and I was very busy with commercials at the time. And that was one reason that I wanted to bring in a, a friend of mine named Craig Ugaritz, the co-writer, to write the screenplay with me. Um, I, jumping back to how the kind of creative and writing process happened, I, literally, Allison Smith, my wife and producing partner, were, and I were in Austin. We were watching uh, Todd play uh, a show, and he started the first few bars of this song and I turned to her and I just said, Hey, remind me to tell you of an idea that just popped into my head about a small contained indie that we could do based on this song. Um, and she sort of rolled her eyes at me, you know, cause I, I'm probably always, you know, popping off ideas like that, that, you know, some of them come to fruition and some don't. Um, but I, I'd say within two weeks, I had a full blown kind of treatment, um, you know, kind of, which is like a short story, basically a version of this with a, you know, a whole lookbook put together with a bunch of incredible still photographs that I thought set the tone of kind of what we want the film to look like. 
Um, a bunch of William Eggleston photos. If anybody's familiar with William Eggleston, he's somebody who kind of uh, a photographer that really uh, inspires me in a lot of ways, but definitely for this movie. Um, and so, yeah, within a couple of weeks, I had that another week or two, I was meeting with Todd, pitching it to him um, to get his sign off and go ahead. And then I brought in uh, my buddy, Craig, who's a, who's a great screenwriter to kind of work with me on the screenplay. And uh, he and I batted it back and forth. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring him in was somebody who wasn't maybe as close to Todd's work and catalog, but also a way to kind of help me kind of, uh, you know, do my day job and direct commercials and do some other things at the same time. So I could kind of pay the bills and squirrel away money so we could get this movie kind of developed and going. Um, and so, yeah, he was a great collaborator for that. And we, kicked it back and forth for, I think a couple months basically. And, you know, all said and done, I think within four months we had this script in actor's hands and um, from seeing Todd play the song, the spark of an idea, four months later, we're, we have the script in actor's hands and we're talking about, you know, possible shoot dates and stuff like that. So it, it was a very accelerated uh, process. That's, that's so exciting. That's so fun. The, 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 I mean, I, I can totally relate to everything about having that idea, watching someone like Todd play, who is one of the all time great show show people. Like, I mean, anybody who's listening to this, if you haven't seen Todd yet, and I'm sure a lot of you have go see Todd, he's the fun, he's like the best stand up comedian in the world and the most wonderful storyteller and the most incredible songwriter. He just has the whole package. He commands a stage, just him and a guitar and a microphone. It's just unbelievable. Um, and but i'm curious about work uh, so many things here one i can completely relate to you're in that moment and you get inspired by someone else's art so many times like i just wrote a couple uh verses to a song after finishing a book and i, I just like S.A. Cosby's Razor Blade Tears, I finished and I just like immediately went, there's this one character I want to write about. And I, that, it's so exciting to see someone else's art and that, let that inspire your own. I can also relate to, I would turn to my partner and tell her the idea and she would roll her eyes like, of course you have an idea. Um, <clears throat> and we'll see what that looks like and if it comes to fruition and how what it looks like on the other end. Um, but I, I, I'm wondering about like, um, about working with Todd himself, like I've had the pleasure, great pleasure of interviewing him. One of my favorite episodes of the marinade is with Todd. I asked Will Kimbrough about working with him as a producer. Um, and with music, that's a little bit different. When you came to Todd with this idea, can you, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, how much he was involved in sort of that process and what it was like, you know, talking to Todd in, in that moment? Yeah. You know, I think, um, it kind of evolved over time. You know, the first time I went out and, and just, you know, I, I got in touch with his manager, Bert. I didn't know Todd personally at the time. I had met him a handful of times, been to a million shows, met him a handful of times, had some mutual friends and stuff like that. Um, and I got in touch with Bert, his manager, and was like, hey, I've got this idea. I'd love to sit down with Todd about it. And so, um, I mean, this was literally two weeks after seeing him in Austin um, that I went, you know, got in touch with Bert, basically. And uh, then we kind of kicked around some dates that I could meet with Todd. It happened to be in Portland. He was doing three nights in Portland, you know, where he's from originally. Um, and so he's going to be there for a bit. So went out and met with him. He was like, they had rented a house that they were staying in um, for the week or whatever. And uh, brought the whole kind of pitch thing. He kind of thumbed through it as I was like kind of uh, pitching him kind of the rundown of the story. He gave him a little backstory on kind of who I was and where I came from and and then kind of walked him through kind of what the story was. Um, I think, you know, I think as musicians get approached by people all the time, they want to do stuff and say, they say they're going to do X, Y, or Z. And it happens in the film industry too. People are constantly like, you know, Hey, you should check out my book or, Hey, I want to, you know, collaborate with you or whatever. So I think there was some skepticism uh, from him probably, he, although that he didn't, I didn't feel that at all the day that the first day that I pitched it to him. He was just like excited and on board. And he's like, fuck yeah, let's do this. Um, and I think he realized, you know, that I really knew the catalog and the source material mm. um, and that I was going to bring kind of a certain level of uh, expertise to um, not just, you know, kind of this new piece of inspired art, but also bring these other elements of kind of his, some of his other work and kind of his storytelling and some of his other things to the film and make the film you know, a real celebration of him and of troubadours in general. So I, I think he understood that, you know, 
that he was in good hands with me kind of taking on uh, this song and developing it into this kind of new, new piece. Um, and then from there, I started working on the script and I would kind of meet with him every once in a while and kind of go over stuff with him. I'd run into, you know, I'd be in the same town he was playing and see him at shows and hang out and stuff like that. Went out to Nashville one time and kind of went through some script stuff with him. And um, he was, for the most part, really hands off in that aspect of it. I, I think, you know, he's busy dealing with his own stuff and uh, touring. And uh, he was mostly playing with the hardworking Americans kind of at that point. It was right uh, up until, you know, he started kind of doing his, you know, the cash cabin sessions and back to kind of doing his own solo stuff. So it was like kind of in that period. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and but the whole time, you know, it was it was uh, just keep going, keep going from him and his team. And, you know, at some point uh, right before we shot the film, Michael Dorman, and I flew out to Asheville, North Carolina on a red eye, um, which is a funny story. I could I could tell you. Um, Please do. <laughs> OK, so, so Michael's in town doing something. We're going to go meet. Uh, we're going to go see Todd in Asheville, North Carolina. We take a red eye. I sleep on the plane. Thankfully, Michael doesn't sleep at all. Um, we land in Atlanta and our flight to Asheville is, uh, I think either we were delayed and missed it or it's canceled or something. And so we had to fly to uh, to South Carolina. Um, so we flew to like Spartanburg or whatever that airport is in South Carolina, um, which was kind of a neat moment because there's some musician friends of my mom who are from there. Mm -hmm. um Walter Hyatt and Champ Hood and those guys are all from there so it was kind of neat to be to land there but anyways we had to take an Uber from South Carolina to North Carolina um so we could make it to the show we end up like Michael you know we pull over it was the lady's first uh, Uber ride she had ever given and she's crossing <laughs> state lines to do it we pretty quickly pulled over and got you know 12 pack of beer or something out of the at the gas station and uh started uh pre-gaming a little bit, I'd say. And then we had check into this like funky motel with in Asheville with this like kind of, uh, I don't know, he's some, some frontier cowboy kind of thing in Asheville. I don't know if you've ever seen this hotel. It's like this rundown motel. And uh, I think I've stayed at that rundown motel. Yeah. Like real, it's like, um, I wish I could think of the name of it. I think I stayed there and almost lost a girlfriend over it because she was so pissed at me. Yeah, and there's like a you know a couple a foot of green water in the bottom of the pool and yeah. that kind of vibe. And so, yeah. which was like perfect. And then we went and saw this amazing show. Got to hang out with Todd before the show, and Michael got to meet him and spend some time on the tour bus with him and all that. And then uh, watched an incredible show. So, and then literally had to fly out the next morning to get back to you know stuff obligations we had in Los Angeles. So was this just fast and furious red eye to the wrong state, uh, Uber ride to rundown motel, um, and then incredible show, which kind of pitch perfect Todd Snyder experience and uh, kind of informed, definitely informed kind of where we are going with the film and stuff. Oh, that's such a great story. I love it. Will you indulge the fanboy in me for two seconds and tell me what it's like drinking beer with Michael Dorman? Michael Dorman's amazing. He, uh, He's such a talented actor and such a just good hearted dude. Um, yeah, it was, you know, we were looking for a needle in a haystack. We needed an incredible actor who could also play music and sing and who could also shoot pool. And and man, he delivered. The, the guy's an animal and uh, he just he just brought it, man. That's awesome. That's so great. Um, one more uh, fanboy question. What about the RZA? Because I feel like I don't get starstruck, really. I, I, I'm lucky. I get to talk to my heroes all the time. My whole catalog with this podcast is full of people that I've been listening to for 20 years or more um, that I you know, grew up listening to and, and consuming their art. But the fucking RZA, that's a different level, man. Like, What was it like directing the RZA? Yeah, that was a kind of dream come true. Um, I think almost everybody was kind of starstruck. Even Sophia Bush, who's this, you know, huge mega TV star, you know, was she told the story that the first concert she ever went to, uh, you know, at, on her own without her parents or whatever was a Wu-Tang Clan show. So she was she was uh, feeling it. And yeah, it was incredible. He, You know, he's a he's a director also. So he's this music genius. He's, he's a, a director in his own right. He's directed some great films. Um, and then also just every time I saw him, you know, do kind of like a little small part in a film, he, he was just so, he's so charismatic and just has 
so much kind of energy and glow that comes off of him that um, he's always enthralling on screen. So um, I, I knew he would be great. And, and he and I really vibed over the idea of music as storytelling. And so the, you know, we, he read the script and really wanted to do it. He liked the role, but he was like, even was even more like impressed with the concept, you know, and the idea of taking a song and turning it into a, a feature. And so um, we really, we got together and talked about like how to make the role really kind of layered and nuanced and dynamic and, you know, really kind of bring that out. And, and there, he did some incredible work there. And then also, you know, just talking about story music and storytelling and he's sitting there like, rapping Wu-Tang lyrics to me over dinner and like, and, and like us dissecting kind of the storytelling elements of it together. And it was just mind blowing and incredible. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. That was amazing. Something I'll never forget for sure. And then on set, he, you know, he's just such a pro, you know, he's, he's directed big, you know, pretty heavy action stuff we're doing. And, uh, you know, which was really complicated stuff, especially, you know, it's not just like two people. It's like a whole, you know, group of people. So it's 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 hard to pull that stuff off and make it feel uh, dynamic and interesting and not just have some people just standing there watching it, you know. So there's a real choreography that goes to it. And the, and the stunt team was really great in helping kind of get that choreographed. But, yeah, I just never I'll never forget. We were uh, Sophia and I were going through some stuff, trying to work out the mechanics of some some of the um, not the fight stuff so much, but some of the um, kind of relationship dynamic stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we have all this heavy lifting to do from an action standpoint. And Riza just comes up and he's like, all right, let's dance. Um, and, <laughs> and that's what he we, said. He actually said, let's dance. Said. Yeah. Yeah. He said, all right, let's dance. And so away we went. And uh yeah, I just had to, you know, really, we had a lot to do and short amount of time to do it. It was the shortest night of the year that we didn't have uh, a lot of time before the sun was going to come up. And we just had to like crank through all this like super intense uh, fighting scenes and action scenes and all the other stuff. So, yeah, it was, uh, man, it was uh, it was a fast Fast and Furious dance, uh, for sure. Let's dance. I could just picture him saying it. Like, he's so cool. I could just picture so him cool. saying it. So cool, the way he did it, too. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Um, why? So uh, Todd's catalog is rich, and, and and the stories are rich. There's, there's so... Why do you think Just Like Old Times hit you in that moment as source material for a feature film? Why that instead of... I mean, you could probably choose, you know shit half that half that album you know uh, and that's just one album yeah you know it was it was one of these situations where we were um we had developed this other project this other film this kind of private detective texas set film noir that we were uh that we were casting and we had several instances where we had some kind of well-known actors attached to do it and we we're gonna go forward and do it but it's a little bit bigger of a project so it required a little bit more financing and stuff um, and this thing just seemed like, because the song all takes place in motel room, I was like, Hey, this can be contained. We could do something that's contained, but also has all this like rich, you know, kind of character stuff. And so that was the initial idea was like, Hey, we can make this kind of contained. We can, we, we have the financing lined up for this other project. That's a little bit bigger, but we can maybe pivot to this one, which is a little bit more contained and smaller and, and, uh, just make it happen. And so that was like the initial idea was like, there's all this framework for rich character stuff, but also in a contained kind of environment. Um, And then I started writing the story and writing the script and it kind of got a little bit bigger than what I originally kind of thought would be super contained. And it's still moderately contained, you know, I'd say 40% of the movie takes place in and around the rundown motel um, like it does in the song. Um, But I just, the song is so perfect from a, um, from an inspiration standpoint, because um, it's got this framework of stuff that can be expanded upon, right? So um, in the song, Todd says, you know, I won a tournament down in Oklahoma City last week, hustled half this town tonight. And like, he he says a little bit more than that regarding pool, like one other line maybe, but that's almost all he says about pool playing. But so like, for me, I'm like, wait a minute, let's, let's, that could be what happens in the first act. Let's go figure out you know, who this person is, what he's done to get from point A to point B, and then what's going to happen, you know, as he goes to point C, because, you know, you, you, you set him up in the first act, and you got to knock him down in the third, right? So mm-hmm. 
it just lent itself to that. There was this economy in the song of like this one line that talks about him hustling people in pool, right? And so then my kind of creative brain gets spinning is like, well, who are these people that he hustled? What was the circumstances in which he hustled them? How did he get out of this situation? If they were, you know, wise to it and and maybe dangerous, how did he get out of that situation? And are they going to come looking for him if he did do that? And so that was kind of the essence of how the we could set up this kind of danger in the first act and then kind of have those chickens come home to roost in the third act. And then the song is really the core of the song takes place in the second act. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's also the other thing about the song that's so incredible is there, there's also, and again, it's this economy. There's so much backstory that's just hinted at in the song that I was able to use as backstory in the film too. Um, you know, he mentions New Orleans in the song, but we don't know that much about New Orleans. We, you know, um, but so I was able to use that as like, okay, here's this moment that happened between them in New Orleans that was like this kind of last time that, that they, you know, saw each other in this kind of blow up that happened. And like, that's going to be, you know, the, this thorn and, you know, them reuniting at this moment, among other things. Right. But, you know, so like those sort of things just allowed for, that kind of rich backstory and history between the characters that it's hinted at in the song. And what's great about the song is that it lets the audience kind of imagine those things, but it doesn't really spell those things out. And I kind of took the same approach for the movie. I didn't fully spell all those things out. I also uh, let those, some of those things kind of left it up to the imagination of the audience, but I fleshed them out more than obviously what's fleshed out in one line of a song um, to give you, you know, just some more kind of, uh, more protein to chew on for for the film audience, you know, basically. Right, exactly. There's the economy to the song, but there's also an economy in telling such a rich story in a film like this. That there, you have to, you could have, you could have made this a whole series, really. You know, there's so much that could have gone into it, and you're able to tell the story in such a short amount of time. Being, you have to also, I would imagine, be aware of that economy in your own writing. Yeah, totally. You know, and that's one of the things you, you kind of touched on this earlier, and I, I didn't probably connect these dots, but like doing commercials, you're confined to such a short amount of time. So that art of being able to like quickly tell a story in a short amount of time and to hit certain beats that you need to hit is something I definitely, you know, w- was able to develop, you know, doing commercials. Now we kind of took a little bit of a different approach with this movie to some extent, um in that there it's like a slow especially the first half of the movie is very much like kind of a slow burn like let's just live with this character and kind of feel his kind of vibe and it's you know i kind of think of it as a rubber band you know you're kind of pulling it back slowly you got to do that in order for it to really kind of you know the tension to rocket it forward in, in the end you know so but yeah you know this you know obviously and i had a, a good friend of mine in austin who you know came to the premiere we did in austin and he, he was like i could watch a whole series of you know this guy just out living his life hustling people in pool trying to play music getting into trouble you know and uh so yeah i think the modern approach is that and i think this character and and this world is so rich that you could kind of expand in those ways and it could be something you know there's kind of a hang you know it's kind of a hang you're hanging with jesse in the first you know third of this movie and getting to have watch him and go along the ride really experience these kind of adventures that he's kind of going on some of them are slow and lonely and some of them are a little bit more adrenaline packed and i I think that's kind of how life is so we tried to kind of capture that well yeah you're going on this hang with jesse and you, you he's such a mess but he's also so likable and he's so talented in so many ways and there's so there he's so human you can connect with him on different levels even though he's in many ways just absolutely outstanding in a way that i can't i won't be able to grasp but also really really low in ways that um i hope to never sink to you know and so i love that about him he, you do and i love the way you built that tension because you do become so invested in him and then when when the rubber band does snap it's like oh man i am I'm, i am in this like let's go for this ride yeah thanks yeah that was that was kind of the that was what we were going for for sure you know i think there are people um you know there are people who kind of don't have the highs and lows they're kind of live in kind of the middle channel that you know most of you know polite society is all kind of jokingly refer to them lives and then there are people who you know kind of have a little bit more of those ups and downs and they seek adventure 
and kind of live close to the edge. And there's lots of fun that goes along with that. But then there's those kind of dark low moments that are the flip side of that. You know, you, the candle burns bright, but it burns out at some point, you know? And, and uh, so that was one of the things where I was really exploring here was like, you know, Towns Van Zandt says the sake of the song or Todd refer, refers to the Aaron Allen story, which I think is just such an amazing story is like, you know, to write good songs, there's this idea that you kind of need to live close to the edge and, and be prepared to pack up all your shit in 15 minutes and get out of whatever situation you find yourself in. And you have to kind of force yourself to do that in order to kind of stay connected with, you know, kind of real life and humanity and what's going on in the world. So you can kind of channel that into your art. And so there's a long tradition of troubadours kind of doing that. I think Todd even talked about on your podcast, like Jerry Jeff told him to, you know, seek adventure and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know Todd has done that. I, I kind of try to do that myself, you know, um, in, in a moderated way, but I try to do that myself as a creative person. Um, but so I think that was like one of the kind of concepts here was like, get the highs and the lows and you see somebody kind of really kind of leaning into that kind of troubadour lifestyle and really embracing that. And you get to see kind of the damage it does to, not only to themselves, but also to the relationships that they have with people. And, you know, you know, if, if you're going to pack up your bag in 15 minutes and split, you know, people can't really count on you all the time. And that kind of, you burn bridges with people, you know, and, and maybe, maybe that's what's needed for the art, or maybe it's not, maybe, maybe having those personal relationships with people that, they know they can count on you. Maybe that's equally important or important in a different way. And so it's sort of a coming of age story, like a arrested development, stunted growth kind of coming of age story for, for this guy, but we don't really resolve it. We don't know where yeah. it's going to going to go when it's all said and done. But yeah, I mean, Michael Dorman is so charismatic and flawed at the same time uh, in this role that the Jesse character has kind of both sides of the coin. Um, and that's something, you know, I, I feel that personally myself in many ways. And also I, I've experienced that with other creative uh, folks. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, when sometimes when they're, when they're in their good place, it's amazing to be around them and the most fun you'll ever have. And sometimes when they're um, in a mood or they're, you know, off in their down period, they're like miserable to be around. And so we wanted to kind of explore that and, and kind of, you know, I, I think, as a selfish artist, I, I kind of wanted to examine artists being selfish and like how it kind of affects other people in their lives. And is that fair or is their art warrant that, or does it not warrant it? You know, why did, why, why do artists like myself even get to be self-absorbed and, and selfish <laughs> with, with uh, putting my art first over other things. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know the answers to that, but I thought it was a, a good question to at least pose. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, I think that, uh, and I think I, I like that there's a, a conversation about the idea of the tortured artist these days, you know, and like how so many folks are, are not necessarily living this Towns Van Zant type life. They're, <clears throat> they're experiencing life, but they're doing it in a much more responsible and, uh, you know, a, a much, uh, healthier way. You know, Steve Earl talks about like, how much he loves towns, but like that he doesn't want him to be overly romanticized because he was, he was a, such a mess, you know, and there were so many problems with towns, for example, and we could do that about so many different artists. And I love that you referenced that thing that Todd said to me about Jerry, what Jerry Jeff said, because Todd was really nuanced in that. And he really talked about how, like, he still tries to seek out those experiences, but like how he kind of, he was pretty vulnerable in that moment talking about how like it is a balance, you know, like you got to make the gig and you got to make sure you're maintaining your relationships. And sometimes that gets in the way. It's always amazed me that Todd has been, has managed to remain so well-respected by everybody around him and live such a wild life. It just blows my mind. Well, he's so prolific too. That's the <laughs> yeah. part, you know, that's the part that blows my mind. And even I think some of his peers and friends, you know, are blown away by that too he's so prolific. I mean, it's insane how, how much great work he's put out there and, you know, the songs and the storytelling and, and the book, I mean, the book is amazing. <laughs> like um, it's just, you know, I think he gets up early and works early in the morning, which is uh, you know, what a, a lot of creative people do, I guess, but yeah. man, uh, I, I, uh, I go out and roar on the weekend and uh, I have to kind of lock it in and not do that. You know, I couldn't imagine being on the road all the time. You know, it, 
and I know he talked about it. A lot of musicians talk about it. It's just so discombobulating. You know, sometimes my, my job does that to me too, where, you know, there are months on end where I'm on the road shooting stuff, sometimes doing commercials and man, it's discombobulated to to not know what day or time it is and live out of a bag for, for that. I, I couldn't imagine, um, doing that as a touring musician the road dog you know it's just i i it's only i could only <laughs> lead to uh, trouble for me i would imagine yeah me too i don't think i'm geared for it that aspect of the life um isn't talked about enough it seems so romantic but it's just so hard um the, the couple of more things I, I wanted to talk to you about and one of them is the easter eggs in the film there's so many great especially for folks who like this show and like the things we talk about on this show there's so many fun moments a lot of them i didn't catch until i started to like listen to interviews and uh on your uh, social media for hard luck love song there was a john prime lyric and uh, that i didn't catch you know there's all kinds of things i didn't catch is carla uh named after the song and the devil you know yes okay yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of really fun things like that. How I mean, do there's you- there's uh, for Todd ones, there's dozens like I can't even probably keep up with them all or, or I haven't I lost count. I Todd and his whole kind of inner circle, they couldn't keep up with them all. There were too many. Um his That's interesting. You know, Todd's super fans, the the shithouse choir. I, I think they find new ones every time they watch it and they're they're posting about, oh, did you see this? Oh, did you see that? And some other ones. So yeah, there there's a there's just dozens, if not over a hundred, uh Todd related ones. And then um there's also just tons of other kind of music related ones and 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 even some other film related ones too, you know, things that are kind of were important kind of touchstones for me as a creative that I kind of embedded in this thing. It is, I mean. There, there's a ton. So that one social media post you're talking about where the John Prine one was there. If you look in the hashtags, we hinted towards some other ones uh, that might be a good uh, kind of uh, treasure map to finding some of the other ones. And so that oh, might be that's fun. fun for some people. That's fun. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. That's great. Um, gosh, this has been so much fun, man. We usually end on what you're getting down on. So the art that has you inspired at the moment it could be a record you're listening to or a painting you saw or a film or a book, just something that's that you've consumed lately or are consuming that you're excited about. You know, it's yeah. And I've listened to your podcast. So I was uh, you know thinking about that question quite a bit. It's interesting. I've just been so nose to the grindstone on this thing that I haven't really been able to kind of absorb a bunch of other things uh, at the same time because I've just been so kind of occupied with it. There's a handful of things for sure. I'm constantly listening to music and stuff like that, um, but I haven't been reading any books lately. Um, I've been, you know, I've literally been shot out of a cannon in the past like you know month, basically going around, you know, screening this thing and doing media and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, there's a handful of things for sure that um, I went to Americana Fest, so I got to see a bunch of great music um, there and getting I, I'm such a live music fan. So I, I had not been able to go see live music for the past you know two years or year and a half or whatever. So it was really great to be able to go out and see live music. And that show that Todd and Jack Ingram put on at the um, at the Ryman um, during Americana Fest was just amazing. Um and I got to see uh, Langhorn Slim and Patrick Sweeney, Hayes Carl, Trey Burt, Sarah Shook, and Lily Hyatt. I got to see all like little shows from them during kind of Americana Fest. That was amazing. Um, that Trey Burt album, that new Trey Burt album is just amazing. I've been listening to that quite a bit. Um, Hayes has a new album that's uh, about to come out. And there's some great stuff that's been pr- released already on that. Um, I laugh every time uh, there's that song uh, you get it all that I think is the title track of the album I think um, and he's there's a line where he says you get all my old guy cart cassettes and I laugh every time I hear that one so that's been fun and then uh, shovels and rope has a new thing that's dropping um, I think I heard a single today that sounded amazing um, comes out in February I think yeah yeah so that I'm looking forward to that Um I'm really looking forward to going. There's a couple of movies coming out this weekend. I'm looking forward to going to see the new Wes Anderson French Dispatch. I want to see that. Yeah. And then uh, Dune. I'll probably go see Dune. I, I really like Denny uh, Villeneuve, the filmmaker, a lot. Um, so I'll probably go see Dune to get that big kind of epic uh, theater experience. Um, and then uh, something that kind of hit home for me recently. It's not a new song or anything, but. 
I was in Austin. Uh, we did on opening night, we did like a little premiere thing in Austin where I'm from and a bunch of family and friends came out. Some of my oldest, dearest friends. And, uh, when I got back to LA, cause we, we basically did it out on Friday and then we flew out Saturday morning, came back to LA to do it all over again here in LA with some of the actors and some of the crew and stuff um, from the movie. Um, there's this band called the record company. I really dig a lot. And uh, they have this song called the movie song and I had heard it before and I, I liked it and never thought too much about it or whatever. I enjoyed it, but hadn't thought about it. But after spending that time in Austin with, with my people, um, getting to hear that, listen to that song on Saturday, kind of as like a little pregame before I hopped in the Nova to drive over to the LA uh, premiere. Um, that song really kind of hit home for me. It's uh, it's kind of a cool song. It's, it's totally kind of just, it's like reminding you about the good old days and getting together with your friends, like nothing's changed. And that, uh, that one really kind of hit me, hit me hard, like right before going to the, do the big LA premiere at the big Grove theater and all that kind of stuff. So like just getting to remember kind of where I come from and my good buddies and getting to see them uh, Friday night in Austin, uh, that song kind of, kind of tied it all together for me. So that was great. That's cool, man. Yeah. The record company played Gasparilla music. They put, they put on such a great show. They put, they played Gasparilla music festival a few years ago. I, I went in cold. I didn't know really anything about them and immediately was like oh yeah I, i'm into this well, did were you at the trey burt show uh, that was on uh cannery row right before great peacock played i went to the one at uh it was the um oh boy oh. Uh, 40th anniversary uh party where the, basically their whole you know that's fun kelsey uh, and yeah the whole roster yeah. of artists played yeah i went to that one got to see trey got to see uh uh Arlo McKinney, I think another one of their artists, I think is his name. Um, anyways, yeah. yeah, got to see Trey and that was amazing. Um, yeah, his new album, <coughs> it's his so new good. Album, super cool. And he's, he's about to play here in LA at, at this place called gold diggers where, uh, where Leon Bridges just did, recorded his last album. So I'm going to go see Trey at gold diggers. I think, uh, next week or something like that i think so that'll be cool nice very yeah. nice i thought that was really cool this story you told on jack's uh podcast about the hotel and how you chose it because of the leon bridges uh because of the leon bridges video yeah man that was uh very fortuitous to be able to discover that video and find that motel um yeah i That's love cool. that song and that video is great and and leon bridges is incredible like one of the last shows i saw before covid um, I mean, now I've been out to some live shows, but one of the last live shows I saw before COVID was Charlie Crockett at the Troubadour. And uh, I felt this presence. I was standing like right next to the stage on the side. And I felt this presence behind me. And I turned around and there's Leon Bridges decked out like head to toe in this incredible custom like Western suit with his hat tipped down. And I was like, holy shit, there's Leon Bridges. Leon Bridges looking like Leon Bridges. Yeah, doing Leon Bridges things. And then next thing I know, he's up on stage doing uh waiting around to die the towns of anzant song and then uh for the encore he got up with uh with charlie crockett and they did a whole you know mess of songs and it was incredible good way to uh to good last show to see before uh things locked down and now i'm i'm glad that uh live music's out in the world again and i'm able to go see it that's great man justin thank you so much this was such a pleasure i thank you for the film hard luck love song thank you for your time energy right now thank you for listening to the marinade that that made my night to hear that you've been listening to the show i just really greatly appreciate uh all of this this was too much fun and uh, i hope folks are able to go out and see this wonderful film and then rave about it online so we can all chat about it yeah thanks jason so much it's you know it's a trip challenging time for indie film and independent music. So, you know, shows like this are kind of doing, doing the Lord's work to some extent, kind of helping spread the word. So like, I just encourage everybody go out there and, and uh, hear independent music, go out there and see independent film and kind of support, uh, you know, artists. Um, so I think it's the only way forward. We'll keep this stuff kind of going as if uh, audiences really kind of get behind it. So it's uh, time to get back out there. Well said, man. Thank you so much again. Have a wonderful rest of your day, dude. You too, Jason. Thanks, man. Thank you. Justin Corsby, y'all. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank all of you for listening. 
hardlucklovesong.com for all things hard luck love song y'all check out the film it's wonderful if you like this show you're gonna love that movie it was so much fun to pick justin's brain about how this gorgeous piece of art came to life it's one thing to make a podcast or an album or all of those things take a lot of work and any creative work i certainly respect but man a film just incredible to me that People have that kind of vision and are able to bring it to life. And I'm so glad that Justin was so open about his process. Y'all, again, check out the film, marinadepodcast.com for all things The Marinade, including written pieces. I've been writing just about once uh, an episode at least, which is averaging about once a week. I've been posting a new review under two, which I'll get to in a second. Also have photography over there, um, our online store, which is bare right now, but I'm working on some new merch and more. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I love, we've really had, uh, especially lately, quite a few interactions on Twitter of various sorts, and it continues to to grow, you know, the the social media presence of the show. And I'm really grateful for that because uh, I feel like I'm, I've made so many connections. I was just reflecting on that recently, the relationships that I've built through this show that I didn't expect. It's been super fun. Subscribe and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Tell us, tell a friend about the show. These are all free ways to support us. If you really like the marinade and what we're doing, consider joining our Patreon community. It's just a few bucks a month and you get exclusive content. It's a lot of fun too. We have uh, quite the community over there. So as little as $2 a month, you can support us. Every little bit helps, uh, and it all goes right back into the show. I'm right now recording into a microphone that I purchased with uh, funds that we raised over on Patreon. Got to get a new computer. This one's about to quit on me, so I've been saving up for that. And so thank you so much to folks who contribute over there. If you can swing it, we would love to have you. If not, just thank you so much for listening to the show. We really, really appreciate it. All right, y'all, it's time for our review under two, where I review some work of art that has me fired up in under two minutes. This episode's review is the forthcoming record, The Way Down, from our friend Van Plating, which will be available on November 19th, 2021. Van Plating's forthcoming record, The Way Down, is top-shelf bourbon served neat on the back deck at twilight. Its complexities are immediately apparent, but it's still best enjoyed with slow, rapt attention and an awareness of the context. Van Plating spent her 20s playing and singing in indie rock bands. When her band Pemberley broke up, she decided to take some time off from touring and making records. And then life happened, and a little time off turned into years. But once the need to create, the pang that pushes one to make beautiful things enters the system it never leaves. Like a blood flute quietly doing its work, the need to make art will rear its head even decades after the first bug arrives. Plating's 2019 self-titled record was the manifestation of the creative bug pushing itself from the cocoon. The Way Down, set for release on 11-19-21, is where the butterfly takes flight. A decade of reflection and growth baked into a collection of songs that celebrates the person Plating has become and is becoming. So often we think of creative change in terms of rebound or redemption, an artist who overcame addiction or who was left for dead by the industry. In the case of Van Plating's The Way Down, the change is not a return from oblivion. It is a leap back into a life that was always there percolating just below the surface of a normal quote-unquote existence. The spiritual center point of the record is the final track, Oxygen. It's a song about the loss and recovery of love. Its imagery is stark and powerful, with the ocean setting the stage for an examination of what it means to lose something essential and recover it through perseverance. Whose side are you on? My wings are made to soar, she sings. Oxygen is the second song on the record to mention wings, the appearance of which nods both to Van Plating's complicated relationship with the church and her determination to rise above the noise. Who should make art? How and when should it be made? Throughout the way down, Plating decides the answers to those questions on her terms. Oxygen is a fitting closer to the record. With little more than three chords and an acoustic guitar, Plating makes clear she may have a hard time breathing at points in her life, but on this record, her creative airways are clear. That's our review under two for The Way Down by Van Plating coming out on November 19th. Thank y'all again for listening. Thank you so much to our guest, Justin Corsby. Go out and see the film. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.